shatters the ram, becomes very great. That represents the Persian and Median Empire being overthrown by the Greeks under that prominent horn. That prominent horn was Alexander the Great, verse 21. He, he was outnumbered by the per Persians, but he was victorious. A great, great leader. So the ram, the goat with a prominent horn, image three, verse eight. The prominent horn is broken off. Alexander dies at the age of 32. <clears throat> and that one horn is replaced by four horns. Verse 22, these four horns represent the Greek empire which was divided under the control of four of Alexander's colonels. Colonels, get it right, sorry. And that is in respect that Israel therefore came under the control of Seleucia. So those we go through quite quickly, but the fourth image is the one we're going to think about quite a bit. Because out of one of those four horns comes one who was started small but became very great, a very powerful horn. Verse 9, its power reached to the beautiful land, refers to Israel. Verse 10, it reached, this, this goat, it reached the host of the heavens, it threw down some of the starry host, trampled on them. Verse 10. What's the starry host? Do you remember when God spoke to Abraham? And he said, look up at the heavens, look at the stars, count the stars, so shall your offspring be. The starry host is trampled. God's people, he sees God's people being trampled. This goat sets itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. Verse 11. He takes, that's God himself, takes away the sacrifice, brings low the sanctuary. Truth is thrown to the ground. So what does that one mean? What is that picture? Go to verse 23. A stern-faced king will arise. Interestingly, that his power is given to him. It's not his own power. That's a very interesting picture. So it could be. Could be. Is that God's allowed will that he allowed this king to come? He didn't arise by human power. But he wrought, verse 24, outstanding devastation. He destroyed mighty men and holy people. He caused deceit to prosper, verse 25. He destroyed many. He considered himself superior against the prince of princes. But in verse 25, it says, he will be destroyed. And in verse 14, it says, the sanctuary will be re-consecrated after six and a half years. Well, what an interesting picture. Was this just a nightmare? 
Did it happen? Did this small horn become great? Did he appear? This is written in the year 552. If you go forward about 400 years to the year 171, the ruler of Seleucia was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Epiphanes means God manifest. So he saw himself almost as God. He makes Donald Trump look really quite a humble man. And this ruler of Seleucia, Antiochus Epiphanes, wrought devastation over six and a half years, six and a half year period to Jerusalem before he was overthrown by the Maccabean rebellion. His determination was to eradicate the Jewish people. He killed the high priests. There are various stories of the size of the slaughter, but it could be as many as 80,000 Jews were slaughtered. The temple was converted to the worship of Zeus. Pigs were offered as sacrifices. The temple was defaced. And yet we read, he was destroyed, not by human hands. After the rebellion, he fled. And there are varying commentators thinking how he died. But he died not as God manifest, but he died of worms or ulcers or bowel disease or insanity. So there's this vision of a limited severe attack on God's people. And that's what was revealed to Daniel. So that's the revelation. I'm sorry that's a bit quick, but I hope you got the picture. Various empires have come. Awful period for the Jewish people. But it comes to an end. So let's move from revelation to reaction. I just wanted to look two little things about the angels. First, it's interesting that the angels say in verse 13, they've seen this awful, awful devastation. And they cry out, how long? How long, Lord? It's quite interesting that they don't say why. And perhaps sometimes we want to know the answer why. Sometimes we can't ask God why. He doesn't necessarily reveal why. They ask, how long? They're told the vision, it will take six and a half years. That's how long they're going to suffer. They shared agony for God's people. It's almost as if heaven was weeping. But then there's a second angel, Gabriel. He's instructed by one who looks like a man, verse 15, to interpret the dream. At this stage, Daniel is terrified. He's lying prostrate on the ground. He's face down. He's asleep. Verse 17, son of man, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. And this angel touched me, verse 18, and raised me to my feet. He wants Daniel to see it's a limited time. It concerns the time of the end, verse 17. It's the appointed time of the end, verse 19. It's the distant future, verse 26. 
See, Daniel was writing not really for the Jews under the Babylonians. He was writing for these Jews in the second century BC. It's a vision for the future, verse 26. It concerns the distant future. Daniel was to seal it up, verse 26. So God was giving to Daniel a word to people three centuries or four centuries later on. It's a vision for those suffering under Epiphanes. That's the angel's reaction. He wanted Daniel to understand. What is Daniel's reaction? He's sick for several days. Have you ever seen something that's made you sick? You've been really appalled, perhaps you've seen a serious accident. I remember one day I went to watch a, a football match and I saw a guy's ankle bone come out of his, out of his joint through the football sock. And I went, and I, I'm not very good with blood at your nose. And I felt awful. And here's Daniel, he's seen this and he's sick for days. He's realised that God's people weren't going to go back after this period in Babylon into Jerusalem, have a lovely time, be blessed by God. He saw that different empires were going to come in and then in the second century BC, they were almost going to be blown away by this evil leader. It's an awful picture. The angel's reaction, Daniel's reaction. What's our reaction? What's your reaction? It's good to see, isn't it, that the Lord is the Lord of history. It's history, it's his story. He shows Daniel something that's going to happen 400 years hence with such detail. This is going to last for six and a half years. Is that a one-off? Does God just do that occasionally? But then you start thinking, it did happen. But then I thought about Isaiah, 150 years before Daniel. He talks about a virgin having a child. Did it happen? I thought of Micah, a prophet, 200 years before Daniel. He spoke of a ruler of Israel coming out of Bethlehem. The birth of Christ. Did it happen? That child was born, that child grew into a man full of grace and truth. And Isaiah said 150 years before Daniel that that man would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. Did it happen? Did it happen? The death of Christ. The Lord is the Lord of history. He's absolutely in control, knows what is happening. Controlling. And that reminded me of another vision in the first century given to John. Believers then were being persecuted under the Roman Empire. Again, thousands of Christians were tortured and killed. The numbers were 
varying commentators, but it certainly goes into thousands. And John receives a vision. It's a vision of God sitting on his throne, surrounded by elders, with a scroll in his right hand. And John is so anxious. He cries, it says in Revelation 5. Who can open the seals on this scroll? We can see God's big story. And John, and the elder says, don't worry. The elder touches Daniel. Don't cry, don't cry. See, the Lion of Judah has triumphed. John then writes, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. There's a great chorus from all the elders. You are worthy because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. I think that includes women as well. Another vision of the future. That Christ would open the scroll and reveal what was to happen at the past. There's a picture of the elders falling down on their knees as they realize that this slain lamb was purchasing men and women for God. That's the Lord of history, his story. And that's the end of the story. One day he will come back. One day he will bring in a new heaven and a new earth. That's what the scroll revealed. We said about the other visions, did it happen? It did. Will this happen? Do you trust the Lord of history? Will he come back? That's the good news. He's the Lord of history. So that was one aspect of this dream I thought was fantastic. It's complex, but yeah, it was that all history in God's hand, really. But also the word of God reveals something not so good. And that reveals that this side of heaven, this side of this entry into this new heaven and new earth, God's people are in a constant fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus, that lamb, said to his disciples, says to us, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He's the Lord of history. But in this mystery, in some respects, he doesn't promise a bed of roses for the rest of this earthly life. He promises a battle against evil. And Neil was telling me in uh, the New Testament, Jesus really only promises two things to believers. He promises the Holy Spirit and he promises persecution. So this is the package. He's the Lord of history and we're in a daily, daily battle. We see nations, don't we, under evil control. 
And we're unaware of our own selves, aren't we? We're battling within ourselves. So why did he tell us this? Why did Jesus say to us that you will face hatred and persecution? John 16.1 says, I've told you this so that you'll never go astray. Jesus, the lamb, he just wants us to trust him in, sorry, in the battle to walk closely with him. He knows what it's like. That's why he sent Gabriel to Daniel to explain it. And that's why he sends Jesus to explain to us so that you won't go astray. There's an interesting conclusion. If you look at the very last verse, verse 27. Daniel was worn out, he's exhausted for several days. And then it says, then he went about the king's business. That's what we're going to do this week. We're in a battle, but we're holding the hand of the Lord of history. And we're going to go about his business. I'll ask the band to come up. We'll just let's be quiet as we perhaps respond, as we see the Lord of history. And we see the cost of following Christ. So let's just be quiet for a moment. We were listening to a chap called Simon Ponsonby, who's at St. Aldate's in Oxford. And he says there's really three types of sermon. One which says, come to Jesus. One which says, come back to Jesus. And one which says, come closer to Jesus. And in some ways, perhaps the message of this morning is all three. So maybe there may be somebody here who's never responded to the Lord of history. And Jesus says, come. Maybe some here this morning who've perhaps felt they're moved away from Jesus. And the Lord says, come back. The some that are walking with Jesus. And Jesus says, come closer. It's quite interesting that when Paul prayed for the New Testament church, he didn't pray they wouldn't have persecution, they wouldn't have problems. He prayed that they would know Jesus better. Father, we thank you for the Lamb. We thank you for what he's done for us. Help us to walk closer to you, Jesus, for your glory's sake. Amen. Sorry about that. A couple of songs which are very much linked to what we've been thinking about. Very well picked by Emma. Thank you very much. <laughs>